Scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 7, verse 14, and then 9, 6 through 7, the King James Version. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Unto the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with the judgment and justice from the time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Maybe see. God is good all the time. Do me a favor and open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. I want to look at a few passages before we dive right into those that uh, Johnny read just a second ago. <clears throat> Either nod your head or raise your hand, give me some indication. How many of you went Black Friday shopping? Some of you, like you actually went out and went to the places? See, I'm just thinking, uh, suckers, <laughs> they got you. Because Cyber Monday is my favorite time to shop. And I'll tell you why. Now, I know there's the whole thing of some people, it's like a big family tradition to go out on Black Friday, search for the deals, look for the deals. And, and that's, you know, to each his own. But I like Cyber Monday because I don't have to go anywhere except on the interwebs. Secondly, I'm not using my gas to get there. Third, I don't stay so long that, I'm li that I say, well, let's grab something to eat because I, I got food at home. So I feel like I'm the one with the real savings. But I like it also when you make a purchase online and then you get that email confirmation and it's got your tracking number. And I don't know why. I, the, the, small minds are easily amused and I like tracking the package. You know, it's kind of like when I get in the car and I set the directions on the map or whatever, and it says, your destination will take two hours and ten minutes. I say, challenge accepted. I think I can beat that. And more often than not, I do. But I like watch that tracking because, you know, it'll say, you know, your order has left the store. And you follow up a day later. Your order is now in Tucson, Arizona and you follow up and you keep an eye on it. Your order is now in Evansville, Indiana. You're going, oh, we're getting close. And then there's that great day where you see your order is out for delivery, should arrive before 7 p.m. Now, you, you might think I'm crazy and you'd be right, but I just, I, I just like tracking the packages. In the Bible, specifically in Isaiah, you can track the plan of God and everything that he had prepared. Now. Isaiah was written, and it, 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 anytime somebody said, how do you know you can trust the Bible? My answer is the prophecies. Isaiah was written in the 8th century B.C., so we're talking the 700s B.C. For him to give the detail about Jesus that he did with the accuracy that he gave it, to me that's pretty compelling evidence that the Bible can be trusted, that it is a divine source. But I want you to look with me beginning in chapter 1 because there are a couple observations that we're going to make. And 
this is what God was saying to Judah, and I think we can take the lesson and apply it to ourselves as well. First thing he's saying is that he wants your whole heart. Look at verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do good and seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor and defend the fatherless and the widow. Now look at verses 21 to 23. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. And finally, verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. So God wants the entire heart of Judah. He wants our whole hearts too. You see, they had degenerated into such a state of sin. And this wasn't anything new, but it had been building for hundreds of years. And so God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to try and get them to turn around, to repent, to to quit doing all the bad things. We know, and some of us can probably say, that was me once upon a time. And maybe we can say, I know someone who that's their story right now. But God wanted their whole hearts. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to do right by Him. And so we have this word here that He uses called uh, justice in English, but it it has a little bit of a different connotation from Hebrew. Uh, Mishpat is the Hebrew term. I'm sure you all remember that. There will be a test later. Mishpat refers to the government's exercise of authority and decision-making. And it's very often paired with the word translated righteousness, uh, tzedakah, which means uh, how you do justice in relation to people. So righteousness has to be understood as relational and not just personal holiness. A lot of times when we think about righteousness, we think of the individual, of myself, of how I live and how I do. But the way that it's used and meant to be used uh, from the Hebrew language, it has to do with how you are with everybody else. Second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is a good way to sum that up. So God not only wants our hearts, but He also wants our compassion. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 through 28 with me. I know this is a pretty good uh, passage that we're going to read, but uh, hang with me if you would, please. Isaiah 3... Verse 13, the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard, the plunder of the poor is in your house. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord of hosts? Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, and wanton eyes walking and menacing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. He's talking about uh, ankle jewelry. You know, to have ankle jewelry in that time was uh, one of the many symbols of a person's wealth. So yeah, they're making a jingle with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. 
And that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes. And so it shall be. Instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit on the ground. Because they hadn't looked at their neighbor with compassion, and and you see this, orphans and widows. If you read all the Bible, the Old Testament, two groups of people that are special to God, the orphans and widows. And they're special to God because of how helpless they were. And to look favorably upon a widow or an orphan, to care for them in their need was a sign of righteousness. It was a way to show I'm following the God of Israel. But to exploit them, to neglect them, to overlook them was reprehensible to God and was sinful. Foreign ways had infiltrated Israel and they trusted more in the instruments of warfare than they did God. Chapter 2, verse 7. There's a good parallel of this message that should apply to us that we should take and go, you know, that. That's fitting here. But moreover, when Israel was suffering, it's very interesting the language that's used. From the book of Exodus, when Israel was in Egypt, uh, put under the yoke of the Egyptians, the Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I knew their sorrows. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So right, we most of us, from the time we were children growing up, going to church, Sunday school, vacation, Bible school, all those things, we, we always heard about the story of the Exodus, right? How God sent Moses and Aaron and, and did the plagues, and then Pharaoh finally sends them out. But this is what they were crying out to God because of their oppression. And the sad thing is, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, similar language is used of Israel accusing their fellow countrymen. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is in the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are His pleasant plant. He looked for justice, and behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Similar language. And so it's coming to mind that, you know, how you are doing, your fellow countrymen, your, your brethren in the faith, was how the Egyptians did your forefathers many, many years ago. This is the state of what they're facing. God's judgment's going to visit them because of it, yet the good thing is God promises them hope, even amid His judgment that is going to come. Look at chapter 2 with me, verses 2 through 4.
Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us His ways and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Sometimes people read prophecies of the Old Testament and say, well, you know, that's not how God worked it out because you don't have this level of peace that uh, is promised in the prophets. But there's a way to properly read it, and there's a way to misread it. For out of Zion, that's Jerusalem, that holy hill where the temple once stood, that's where the law would go. And you read the book of Acts, and the apostles were in the temple daily teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. For the longest time, Christians did not engage in warfare. The first few centuries... They didn't do it, and uh, historians or Christian theologians of those early centuries actually said that their prayers were more effective than actually taking up arms. So you had a period where all the nations, I mean, you think about the church. Most of us, I guess, you know, maybe with a few exceptions, are born and raised here in the good old United States. But think about when we have Brother Don Iverson come and talk to us. He talks to us about our brothers and sisters in India. And then you have a group that goes to Haiti where we have brothers and sisters as well. Christians are in every nation. And as the body of Christ, as the people of God, we do not train in warfare. Not as a body, not as a group. Because we follow the way of peace. So now we get to this passage that Johnny read a second ago. Chapter 7, verse 14. One of the my most favorite classes that I took when I was learning uh, to be a minister and studying the Bible and all was a a class that uh, a dear teacher, Tom Holland, some of you know him, he taught. It's called The Gospel According to Isaiah. And we went through the book of Isaiah and he pointed out the various passages that were pointing ahead to Jesus and the church and the like. But when you get to chapter 7, here's the the history of that. Uh, King Ahaz is the king. And by the time of these events, Israel has allied with Syria to make war against Jerusalem. You go, that doesn't make sense. Well, the northern part of Israel consisted of those ten tribes, and the southern part of Israel was Judah and Benjamin, just two tribes. They each had their own kings, and having their own kings, they were two separate kingdoms, and so Israel was waging war against Jerusalem her kinsmen to the south, and had allied with Syria. Now the king of Assyria, two different countries, Syria, Assyria. Confusing, I know, right? Like reading the genealogies of the Bible. But the king of Assyria had chipped away at Israel's, the northern kingdom's territories. And so they believed that if they made this alliance with Syria, that it would help them keep the Assyrians away. Try not to fall asleep. I see the eyelids getting heavy. Just bear with me and we'll move on. Israel and Syria go to war against Jerusalem, so Ahaz requests the help of the Assyrians. 
I need to draw a map. That's a lot of things to remember. But anyway, by doing this, he's demonstrating a lack of faith in God. By allying with a foreign power, he believes that's where the strength will lie rather than trusting in the Lord and and following the Lord's ways as we all should. But their goal, Assyria and, excuse me, Israel and Syria was to install a puppet king in Jerusalem, someone they could manipulate, someone that they could bolster, someone that they could impose their will. So when you get to Isaiah chapter 7, back up to verse 10, Isaiah has gone to the king and he's telling the king that he needs to have faith in God. He doesn't need this alliance because God is the one who will deliver. Verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now stop. This and one other place in the Old Testament are the only two places that I can think of. The other one's in Malachi. And in Malachi, uh, God says, Test me now in this. No other places does God ever say, Test me or, or ask a sign of me. Essentially, the prophet has gone to the king with the word of the Lord, and God is saying, I will convince you. You tell me what you need so that I can convince you. Ask a sign, and look at his reply. Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Okay. Remember, Jesus used the passage to that effect when he was tempted in the wilderness. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So maybe Ahaz, as misguided as he is, He's like, well, I know this scripture, so I'm not going to test the Lord. Well, then he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now you look and you say, well, Stephen... Jesus was called Jesus. He wasn't called Emmanuel. No, he wasn't. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that means God with us. It wasn't to be a name proper, but it was indicative of who this child would be. Now, obviously, in this time, they were not thinking about 700 years ahead. They were thinking here and now. So there was the fulfillment of the prophecy in the here and now for them. But then when you get to the Gospel of Matthew, this is a passage that he refers to and applies it to Jesus. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then you look at the passage from chapter 9 about the type of rule that this son would give. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now, I don't know if you have ever been to a performance of Handel's Messiah. Every time I read this passage, I'm reading it as as they sing it. Uh, Derek, I'm sure you've heard it. You get to that one part, wonderful. Counselor, mighty God. It's very beautiful. I'm not going to make you suffer, but uh, 
If you ever get a chance to go to a performance of Handel's Messiah, really pay attention to what they're singing because they're essentially singing a lot of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Raymond, I was afraid you were going to preach my sermon for me when you went to Ephesians 2, but it actually is very complimentary. I was sitting there going, oh Lord, here we go. (laughs) I would have gotten up and said, well, I don't have to preach a sermon because Raymond stole it, but no, it it actually compliments it very well. The Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now again, if you read this historically in its context, you say, well, you know, that didn't happen for them, but actually it did, but it was short-lived. But the language is used here in verse 6, unto us, it's plural language, for Israel, for, for us. And this is pointing us to a child that was born some 2,000 years ago. And those inspired authors of our Bible, of the New Testament, saw that and they said, here, let me draw your attention to this. He came not as a mighty king with the armies of God, but he came as a child. Not born in a palace, but born in stables. Not of an aristocratic or royal family per se, but of a common girl who was betrothed and who everybody was whispering about because she was pregnant, but it was not her betrothed's child. The things that we often hold up high and esteem are sometimes the very things that God crushes and puts to shame. You know, if you look at all the apostles, you would think, surely God would have chosen the most educated those of the Levitical lineage, those who had the qualifications, whose resume said, I'm the man for this job. But that's not who God chooses. Read your Bible and look at the people that God chooses. He chooses people that are reluctant to do what He wants. He chooses people that are very, very flawed. Some of them doubt Him even. Always think of Gideon. Bless his heart, Gideon. And then you get to those who were the heads of the church. They were fishermen, tax collectors. And probably the one that is most well known to us is Paul. So God doesn't always take the... You know, here's something. Um, You know, when we pray, we often give thanks to God for our blessings. And sometimes we mean our prosperity, our material goods... But are those really blessings? You ever think about it? Sometimes maybe the things that we think are blessings are actually not. Study on that. But Isaiah is pointing not only to his day and time there during the reign of Ahaz, but he's pointing to a time some 700 years ago, uh, 700 years ahead of him, that we in hindsight are able to see how it played out that the child was born and that child was 
God in the flesh, God incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel. And this time of year, a good majority of people are focused on that. Now, if you'll read your bulletins, I've written some articles about the historicity of uh, Christmas and so forth to, to give further elaboration on that. But as people are thinking about it, it's a wonderful time to captivate what they are already thinking of. And here's what I would say to every single person. You celebrate Jesus being born, okay, fine. Don't leave him in the manger. He grew up. He was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. And for three years, he walked among all humanity there in Israel and in Galilee, working wonders and miracles, encountering various different people from backgrounds. And everyone that he went to received him and thought, I can't believe he's come to me. And those that rejected him were the ones that we might have thought he would have gone to first. But he did that ministry in order to show that the kingdom of God was coming upon the, the world. And then he subjected himself to one of the most horrific events. People have asked me before, Stephen, why do bad things happen? Or why am I made to suffer? Go through this, something along those lines. And there's really no logical explanation other than to say that we live in a sinful, fallen world. And not everybody is going to do the right thing by God. But also, I like to remind folks, the hatred, the evil, the grabbing for power of humanity, the willingness to kill. God came to this earth as Jesus and said, I will take it all upon myself. I will take your hatred, I will take your vitriol, I will take your murder, your capital punishment, your false accusations, I will take it all upon myself and subject myself to that and die on the cross for your sins. And he did just that. The song that Derek led recently, uh, a few songs back, you know, speaking of our voice being among the scoffers. Truer words were never spoken. And so now that Jesus has given that sacrifice and rose from the grave, He does give us something very remarkable. Peace I leave with you, He said to His disciples. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. And the peace that God has given to us all is the peace we have through Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we shall have access by faith into His grace, this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we're going to get ready and stand and sing and as always, it's a time if anyone wishes to publicly respond either to obey the gospel or to ask for prayers of the church, 
you can come to the front. You'll have an elder over there, one right there, and I'll be somewhere down here. We'll minister to whatever your need is. But I definitely want you, if you haven't, to obey the Gospel. Because the peace that we have isn't peace on earth in the sense that we would like to have, but it's the peace that we are no longer enemies of the Lord. We have been reconciled to Him through His Son. We have that peace. And it's my prayer that all who hear this would have it as well. I want to close by reading this. Uh, Jim Caviezel, who is the actor that played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, was giving a talk somewhere. And as he was concluding his talk, this is what he was saying. I don't know if he wrote it or if he was borrowing it from somewhere else. The title of it is God's Hall of Fame. Your name may not appear down here in this world's Hall of Fame. In fact, you might be so unknown that no one knows your name. The Oscars and the praise of men, they never come your way. But don't forget, God has rewards that He'll hand out someday. This crowd on earth will soon forget when you're not at the top. They'll cheer like mad until you fall, and then their praise will stop. Not God. He never does forget. And in His Hall of Fame, by just obeying His Son, forever there's your name. I tell you, friend, I wouldn't trade my name however small. It's written there beyond the stars in that celestial hall. For all the famous names on earth or the glory that they share, I'd rather be an unknown here and have my name written up there. Let's stand and sing.